The key is becoming aware of, you know, what is, what are the stories you're telling yourself and what is your suit of armor? Like what, what's the kind of safety suit that you zip into to prevent yourself from being vulnerable and noticing when and where those buttons are being pushed, noticing the function of, you know, this makes me feel more comfortable and less vulnerable, but really paying attention to the cost. How is this preventing you from being the me you want to be, having the life that you want? You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome to the first bonus episode of Wisdom for Wellbeing. I really wanted to bring something special today because it's exactly one week since we officially launched, and that's pretty exciting for me. I also thought that this particular episode was timely. You know, it's a Monday and often when we head into the work week, we can have this sense of overwhelm, you know, worry, a fair amount of stress that comes with the busyness that is our lives. So I hope that you'll enjoy today's interview with Dr. Jill Stoddard. Dr. Stoddard is a clinical psychologist and director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management, a multi-site outpatient clinic offering acceptance and commitment therapy, and cognitive behavior therapy for anxiety and related issues. She is an award-winning teacher, peer-reviewed ACT trainer, co-host of the Psychologist Off the Clock podcast, and blogger for Psychology Today. Dr. Stoddard is the co-author of the Big Book of ACT Metaphors, a practitioner's guide to experiential exercises and metaphors in acceptance and commitment therapy, and author of Be Mighty, A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance. She received her PhD from Boston University in 2007. When she's not writing, counseling her fierce clients, speaking, or podcasting, she's spending time with her amazing family, friends, and dogs, feeling grateful for this mighty life. I'm going to go ahead and guess that you've experienced stress, overwhelm, or anxiety recently. And if so, I have no doubt that you will connect with Dr. Stoddard's wisdom on how you can lead a mighty life, even with the painful emotions that arise with all the challenges you face in a culture that at times can be quite difficult. I know I certainly enjoyed reading her new book, Be Mighty, as well as the conversation here today. Dr. Stoddard's willingness to drop her guard and to let us in on how she actually uses the skills she teaches serves as inspiration as much as I found this to be very connecting. Now, just a quick reminder that the Wisdom for Wellbeing launch party is happening on social media right now, so you can head to drcaitlin.com and you'll find out more details about how you can join and go in the running to win our final prize, something that'll support you slowing down and connecting with your soul. You'll hear more about our amazing partners later in the episode. So without further ado, here's Dr. Stoddard. Welcome, Jill. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast and meeting with me here today. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And first off, congratulations on your new book, Be Mighty. It has 
you know, just made its grand entry into the world. And as we were discussing prior to actually hitting record, I think it is fantastic. It is a really beautiful read. You share your own experiences embedded in a really warm and entertaining introduction to what could be some very complicated concepts around how we might you know, manage our anxiety and live this mighty life that, that we have the option to as women. Yeah. Thank you. And that's, that really was my goal. I think, you know, when I think about my own values, I feel so strongly about the power of these concepts from acceptance and commitment therapy. I live and breathe them in my own life. Um, and I just, I want to be able to get this information out to as many people as possible in a way that's accessible. So I appreciate that feedback. Oh, well, it's it's so fantastic to hear that accessibility is one of the things that you're valuing in this. And I, I would be interested in you sharing what acceptance and commitment therapy is for the audience. But maybe before we get into that area, could we describe a little bit about what anxiety is? I'm sure a lot of people will be <laughs> identifying, but just to hear your take on what anxiety is and why this is important. Yeah, sure. Of course. So you know, we can look at anxiety. Of course, there are there are anxiety disorders, so to speak, um, that are groups of different kinds of symptoms that make up, say, social phobia or panic disorder or agoraphobia. Um, and really what makes something kind of count as being diagnosable or not is whether the symptoms are significantly interfering in functioning in relationships or work or school or things like that. And of course, there's some controversy around um, the whole system of diagnosis because people don't really have something or not have something. We have, you know, different kinds of struggles or symptoms, if you will, that exist more on a continuum than in this I have it or I don't kind of box. But I think the type of anxiety that everyone can relate to, you know, quote unquote disorder or not, um, is just that overarching worry about the future. So, you know, anxiety is sort of this state of readiness for a potential threat that could be up around the corner. Um, and, you know, some people will kind of interchangeably use the terms fear and anxiety, and they're certainly related, but somewhat different. So, you know, fear is kind of that in the moment, acute, um, you know, there's a person with a gun standing in front of you, you're going to have a fear response. And anxiety is more like there could be someone with a gun in the dark alley around the corner. So similar, related, but yeah. but somewhat different. So with that, so there's diagnosable anxiety, which people may or may not be you know, um, aware of or have previously been diagnosed with, but there is also what you describe as a spectrum. You know, we can fall somewhere on the spectrum and it might not be the case that we have something that a psychologist or a psychiatrist would necessarily diagnose, but we can have this experience of this what ifs in the future and this, this could happen rather than it being a direct experience that we're having in the moment, which we'd call fear. Right. Exactly. Right. And how common is this? Because I, I guess reading your book, you know, you talk about a number of experiences that are unique to women and how going into, for instance, a professional situation or balancing the emotional labor that comes with home life, there are some things that are very unique to women and paralleling that women are twice as likely to experience an anxiety disorder relative to men. 
would you mind sharing a bit about this and how this might have influenced the book that you that you've written? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's a pretty stunning statistic to to think that women are diagnosed with anxiety disorders at almost twice the rate of men. And mm. that's just the disordered anxiety, right? So that doesn't include the regular old anxiety that all of us experience on a probably somewhat regular basis, especially in light of everything that's going on in the world. You know, I'm sure for folks in Australia, where you are, these fires have people experiencing much higher rates of anxiety than than they have in the past. And that would certainly be warranted. You know, that's a true, true threat. Um, in terms of the, the gender difference, you know, there are some people who posit that um, the difference is really, it's a faulty difference that is essentially um, that men are not being captured, that men's anxiety shows up in different ways. Like maybe they're more irritable or they're getting angry or they're drinking and, and that they don't kind of fit the, the symptom criteria the way they're currently laid out. That may be true. We don't really know the answer, but I think that that theory really ignores um, the context within which we live. And, you know, you alluded to some of these things, but there's still a, a fair amount of systemic oppression for women. Um, and we are expected to look a certain way, right? We have to have perfect skin and perky breasts and be thin and, um, you know, and all of that is also supposed to look natural. So, right? Like you can't have too much makeup and your boobs can't look fake. And uh, so it's a nearly impossible standard to meet. Yeah, a lot of expectations. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we're still paid less for doing the same jobs. We're still expected to carry more of the kind of domestic and childcare duties. Even when we work outside the home, we're expected to carry more of the, um, what sometimes is referred to as like office housework. So, you know, things like um, planning the office holiday party, um, you know, things that have no impact on whether you're promoted or get a raise, but take a lot of time and energy and effort. Um, you know, men are rewarded when they show anger, whereas women are punished. And Alicia Menendez wrote a great book called The Likeability Trap. And she talks about this like Goldilocks, uh, Goldilocks conundrum, I think she calls it, which is, you know, like the porridge is too hot, the porridge is too cold, and there's like nothing that's just right. And, you know, where women are told, oh, you, you know, you need, to, you need to be at the table, you need to be assertive and speak up, and you need to negotiate for yourself. But then we're also told, you're being a little too aggressive, you're being a little too pushy, you need to pipe down a little bit more. And it's almost like this in-between space doesn't really exist where, um, you know, women can succeed. So, you know, there's, there's, and I could go on and on and on. Those are just a few of the examples. And so, you know, we still live in a world, I mean, sexual assault and sexual harassment and rape. I mean, these are, these are real issues. You know, men don't walk around with their keys between their fingers. They don't have their head on a swivel when they're leaving work and it's dark outside. Um, you know, I think we experience regular fear on a much more um, consistent basis simply because of the environment in which we live. So that's, that's a hypothesis. I can't cite research that supports that, but I think it's certainly possible. 
It certainly resonates. And I imagine it would resonate with a lot of listeners because this is the cultural context that we're living in right now. And perhaps in that case, no wonder then that women are more likely to experience, you know, a more prevalent diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, given that high alert or hypervigilance to, you know, the not too hot, not too cold, the everything that's going on is going to predispose individuals to starting to construct that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, the higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, it's, it's found that people are much more likely to develop PTSD when the trauma, the nature of the trauma has been interpersonal violence like rape and women are subjected to those crimes far more frequently than men are. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, reason to believe that the, the social and cultural context may be, um, if not fully responsible, certainly partly responsible for the higher rates of anxiety in women. And underlying the higher rates of anxiety, you describe, you know, three components of anxiety in the book that often lead to, you know, this experience. And number one is the intolerance of uncertainty, you know, a lack of perceived control and this overinflated sense of responsibility. And we were just talking about all the responsibility women have in what was described as the Goldilocks scenario, but also managing work life, not being too assertive, but also, you know, asserting themselves. Like that's a a lot that an individual would hold. So in my mind, no wonder they have perhaps, and we as women have, you know, this overinflated sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Um, You know, men and women, I think, certainly deal, men have a a sense of responsibility, you know, I think, at least traditionally and in more patriarchal cultures, to financially support the family, and that can certainly impact them as well. Mm. Um, But women have that sense of duty and responsibility around kids and um, domestic kinds of things. And now more women than ever are also in the workplace. And so they take on that level of responsibility as well. Would you mind sharing a little bit about this intolerance of uncertainty that also contributes to an experience of anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the idea that um, as human beings, we're just not big fans of ambiguity. And this is something that is... um, you know, this was like evolutionarily programmed into us. So if you think about it, the way I talk about it in the book is if a cave person wanders out of their cave one day and sees some vague figure off in the distance, you know, this could be a prehistoric killer kangaroo, or this could be a totally harmless ostrich. And you think, um, okay, well, probably it's a kangaroo and i'm i'm going to play it safe i'm going to i'm going to stay in my cave just in case and in that case if you're wrong you might miss your meal for that morning but if you think oh i'm sure it's fine it's probably a harmless um ostrich i'm just i'm going to take my chances if you're wrong in that case then you become the kangaroo's meal so you know, the, the humans, early humans who played it safe, like the, you know, the better to be safe than sorry crew, they had a survival advantage. So evolutionarily, it's like we were designed really to, um, to avoid uncertainty, to uh, not only avoid uncertainty, but even better if we can figure out what the answer is. And 
So, you know, this shows up in all of us now, and it, it seems like it's becoming more problematic um, because we have constant access to information. You know, you don't, I mean, whoever buys anything these days anymore without looking up Amazon reviews or Yelp reviews, if you're looking for a, a restaurant or a service provider. Um, if you have a random question, you can just ask Alexa or Siri. You know, we have this information in the instant that we need it. So, you know, prior to all these technological advances, we had a lot more practice tolerating uncertainty. Mm. And I think those muscles have really atrophied because we don't have to practice it so much anymore. Um, and that difficulty with uncertainty can really fuel anxiety. And the... the um, the lack of perceived control or the desire for control really goes hand in hand with that and is very common for folks who struggle with anxiety. And I think such a great example that, I mean, almost everyone can relate to is when you have that sort of vague medical symptom, like maybe you've been feeling really more, a lot more tired than usual and you're not really sure what it is. And so that uncertainty, that lack of control, what do you end up doing? head to the internet, right? You Google, Google it, you Dr. go to WebMD, <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Google, right? And in the moment you decide to do that, there is a sense of control and like you're about to get an answer and have some certainty. But for anyone who's actually done that, and I'm raising my hand right now, I have done it. <laughs> and, you know, now you think you've got leukemia or a pulmonary embolism or something far more nefarious um, than, you know, what originally drove you to look it up in the first place. And you have no more certainty, you know, probably even less certainty and even less control. So it actually increases the anxiety in the long run. So the key isn't get more control, get more certainty. Um, you know, it's really learning how to accept and tolerate that there are just a lot of things in our experience as humans that we can't control and that remain uncertain. And I'm interested in exploring that accept and tolerate, but I guess just before we head down that track, because you talk about how anxiety evolved in an evolutionary context. And in the book, you also talk about how anxiety does serve us in some ways, that it's not all doom and gloom. Would you mind sharing a bit about that? Because a lot of us, when we hear the word anxiety, we already label it as something that's really negative and something we should be trying to get away from. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, anxiety is that thing, that like moderate level of arousal that really motivates us. So it's the thing that makes you get psyched up for the big game or study for your exam or prepare for your job interview. And if there was no anxiety or arousal whatsoever, then, you know, you sit on the couch and you don't care and um, you don't do what you need to do. And that can actually negatively impact performance. So certainly very, very high anxiety can also negatively impact performance. But research has shown that a, a moderate level of anxiety is actually beneficial to performance. And fear too. I mean, fear is that, that um, programming, the fight-flight programming, so that if you're about to step into the street and there's a giant truck barreling toward you, you want to have a fear response so that you fight or flee. Um, and if you don't, you're dead. So, you know, what happens with anxiety disorders is that fear response tends to happen as a false alarm. And so part of this is learning what is a true danger and when do I need to fight or flee? And when is my body telling me I'm in danger when I'm actually perfectly safe? 
With the body telling you, for instance, that you're in danger when you're perfectly safe, this might pair really well with the concept of acceptance or willingness. So would you be able to share a little bit about how we go on this journey of exploring willingness to have these physical sensations and move into the realm of making these steps towards creating a mighty life? Of course. Yeah. So, you know, most people who struggle with anxiety or panic, fear, any of those things, it's uncomfortable. You know, we don't want to have it. We prefer to feel comfortable, but oftentimes it's the exact things that we're doing to try to feel better that are really the things that are keeping us stuck. So I think a good example, you know, it's really any kind of avoidance. So if you're nervous in social situations, you might turn down a social invitation. Um, a good example that I use all the time because everyone can relate to it is procrastination. You know, you have some aversive task that you need to engage in and you give yourself permission to put it off and you feel better. But in the long run, of course, there's the same amount to do and now less time to do it. And so it's not, it's not the feeling of anxiety that you have about the task that's the problem. It's the procrastination that you're engaging in so that you don't have to feel anxious that actually becomes the, the thing that's getting in your way. And so willingness, you know, people come to therapy, they want to get rid of their anxiety and they're often a little bit surprised when I say that's not really what I see my job as being, right? <laughs> and so the alternative is willingness. And so it's instead of trying to change and control your anxiety, we're going to try to change your relationship to that anxiety. And instead of pushing it down, avoiding it, trying to control it or suppress it, um, it's learning how to open up, you know, first to become aware in the first place and then open up and make space. And, you know, this doesn't mean you have to like it or want it. That would almost be strange, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's essentially accepting what's already here anyway and then making choices that are consistent in the book, I call it the me you want to be, you know, being the person you want to be, living the life you want, knowing that the stuff you're doing to avoid anxiety is probably moving you further away from that space. Hi there, I'm just jumping in to remind you that our launch party is happening over on Insta at Dr. Caitlin and on Facebook at Wisdom for Wellbeing Pod. Women hold a lot on their shoulders. And on Self-Care Sunday through to Wednesday, we're opening up the Soul Giveaway where you have a chance to win a package comprised of some amazing good from some lovely women themselves. The Soul Package contains one crystal candle from Katie at The Little Pink Fox littlepinkfox.com.au. Katie donates a portion of each gift box to Lifeboat SE, which is a South Australian organization supporting those suffering with anxiety. The package also contains one crystal drink bottle from Mama Jacinta at Lily and Rose, lilyroseaustralia.com.au. A shop that she created with delightful goodies for little babies, as well as some self-nurturing for the mamas. And that's not all. What soul bundle would be complete without a little aromatherapy? Fragrant rituals have included a beautiful perfume and a lemon detox tea, both created by the lovely Zahana herself. Check out her shop, etsy.com forward slash au forward slash a shop forward slash fragrant rituals. Or get in touch with Zahana to find out more about her beautiful aroma dress sessions where she creates individualized scents for unique women. 
If you'd like to learn more, check out our social media site. There you can connect with the brands involved as well as visit www.drcaitlin.com forward slash launch TCS to find the full terms and conditions. All right, back to the episode now. So by being willing to have these feelings of anxiety that, you know, may probably, you know, are not necessarily wanted, but can be experienced. You can move towards the me you want to be. And you talk in the book too, about these sweet moments that might help someone align with who that me they want to be is. And you describe in a, just a beautiful moment for you when you walk home in the door from work and your little girls and little puppy dogs come running towards <laughs> you. And that that really highlights for you what values are in the me you want to be. Would you mind just sharing that so that the listeners might in their minds start to think, oh, this aligns with me. These are the things that bring me sweet moments. <laughs> you mean the specific story about yeah, my kids? Yeah, would you mind? Because like, yeah, it's just yeah. so of beautiful. Of course, no. Yeah, no, not at all. And yeah, what I'm talking about there is how we're sort of sold this weird bill of goods that life is about these giant moments of when we have graduations and weddings and babies and you know, you get what, maybe like you can count on two hands, the number of those you get in a lifetime, if you're lucky to live a long life. And so then like, what's the rest, right? It's like all these small moments strung together over a period of years. And if we fail to show up for those and really be present for those, we're essentially missing out on almost our entire lives. And we're very aware when we're having difficult moments, right? I'm very aware when my kids are fighting with each other and you know, just being irritating, right? If I like, let's <laughs> yeah. just say it how it is. Kids yeah, can be sure. annoying sometimes. <laughs> yeah. um, and so what this, what this, this is Kelly Wilson's exercise called the sweet spot. And it's really about showing up for these moments of sweetness or moments where you feel alive or even moments, you know, where I, where I'm working right now in my office, when I leave this office, um, the, the restroom is outdoors. I have to go out and around the corner and there's an ocean view. And there were times where I would, you know, take my phone and be catching up on emails in the 10 minutes between clients. And I've really tried hard to stop doing that so that I can, I live in San Diego, California, and the weather's almost always gorgeous. Um, so to really just take in, even if it's only 15 seconds of me walking down a hall with an ocean view or a sunset. And so the story I tell in the book, and I'm blessed to have this happen, you know, well, every Wednesday, today's Wednesday that we're, we're recording this and I work later on Wednesdays. So my kids get home before me and, you know, it's, it's typically after a long work day and I'm feeling tired. And now because of daylight savings time here, it's typically dark by the time I get home or it has been dark for a while. Um, and whenever I walk in the door, I am, you know, as soon as my kids know I'm there, they usually scream mommy and come running down the hall with just this like expression of pure joy and love. And my, I have two French bulldogs and they're very loud. They snort. We call them piggy doggies and they're, <laughs> they're often ahead of the kids. Um, but all four of them, we have this long hallway in my house and all four of them are just running toward me just so clearly happy that I'm there. And I, 
try, you know, I, I don't put it off like, hold on, hold on. Let me put my bags down. You know, it's like, put everything down, give everybody a hug and really soak in that moment. And, you know, I know darn well that in 10 seconds, my kids are going to be fighting or complaining or, you know, something's going to happen. That's going to be no longer that sweet moment. But, um, you know, I just try to be completely present and take in all of that sweetness, basically. That's so beautiful. And I think such a nice reminder that we can be present in a moment. And if you were thinking ahead to the future when your kids are going to be fighting or what's coming next, that would detract from actually that joyful, that sweet moment that you can put your heart into and really be with. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. And it's a and deliberate. It, and it seems like an, uh, sorry about that. No. It's, you know, it's an otherwise totally insignificant moment right? It's not, it's not a graduation. It's not a baby being born. It's not winning an award or it's just walking in the door after work. But often those are the moments that really do have, um, I don't know, the most like spirit to them that, that offer the most um, opportunity for connection. That's really beautiful because you've identified this moment that you describe as what otherwise could be insignificant. It could blow it, um, blend into the days, but you've made this deliberate effort to be there for it. And similarly, you describe walking to the toilet out the door and seeing the ocean and putting your phone away now, being mindful that that's another opportunity for a moment. So you're actually deliberately structuring your day, you know, and your awareness around cultivating these moments and being there with them. What motivates you to cultivate these moments in this way? I mean, I think it's mostly that like life is really hard, you know, like that's just the deal. (laughs) (laughs) To be human is to know pain. And I mean, darn, if you have an entire day without pain, like you're, you're batting a thousand, right? I mean, life is hard. And whether it's silly little things like traffic or really big things, like you have a, you know, dying parent or can't pay your bills or whatever, um, it's hard. And, you know, I think it just would really be a huge missed opportunity to not soak in and and have gratitude, but like to experience and have gratitude for all of the rest of it, that you can have moments of sweetness, even when you have a parent who's dying. You know, you can appreciate an ocean view or the warm sun on your skin, even if you have an anxiety disorder. And those things are not going to take the anxiety away. Um, And that's certainly not the purpose, but it's really, you know, I think it is one of the ways that we can really feel more alive and more connected to ourselves, our experience, our environment, um, and the people that we care about. Yeah. And it sounds like it's so in line with when you're in those moments, the me you want to be, so to speak, that you are connected with the things that, that light you up inside and guide your heart, even though there might be other things and other pains that are happening in your life and around you at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. With, I guess, kind of flowing into something you call the suit of armor, something that might, you know, have been built up over time and in different contexts that might interfere with how we're actually being able to soak up those sweet moments. 
would you describe what the suit of armor is for us to start this off? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, we all get triggered all the time, you know, mm. difficult feelings show up, difficult thoughts, the inner critic, you know, it seems to be the case that all humans have some version of an I'm not good enough story. And all that, um, you know, those internal experiences get triggered by something. And what I talk about in certainly not my original ideas, there are lots of people who talk about these things in psychology, but we can look at our history, our learning history, as part of the context um, of our present day lives as kind of being responsible for pushing some of these buttons. And so the suit of armor is, you know, trying to understand what, what are the early experiences that you had that have caused you to zip it yourself into a, a suit of protection to try to prevent you from feeling vulnerable, to try to prevent you from being hurt. Um, and so the way I walk readers through kind of figuring this out for themselves in the book is to think about what are some of your early learning experiences? Perhaps you were abused by a parent, perhaps you moved around a lot, maybe you were bullied in school. And the brain, you know, as a kid, we need to make sense of these experiences. And we come up with like a story, like a narrative about what this means about the world. So let's take the example of somebody who's abused as a kid. If your um, dad comes home drunk every evening and beats you up after work and your brain needs to make sense of that, that might look something like, um, you know, the people I love are going to hurt me. And from that narrative, these, the suit of armor develops, the protective behaviors that at the time they develop are literally protective. And so this might mean this child goes in his or her bedroom and closes the door and quietly plays in the corner. And that will reduce that child's exposure to actual danger. But what happens is the context changes and you're no longer living at home with your parents. Um, but the suit of armor doesn't change. We continue to practice those same, we have the same narrative and we continue to practice the same behaviors. So now this person is an adult and in a romantic relationship and believes people I love are going to hurt me. And so he or she does things to not maybe literally close the bedroom door and hide in the corner, but to hide in a more figurative way, you know, to maybe not share entirely of him or herself. Um, and those things in the moment will give a sense of security, protection, decreased feelings of vulnerability. But the cost is in the long term, it's those exact behaviors that are going to lead to the demise of the relationship. And when that happens, that original narrative gets reinforced. See, people I love are going to hurt me. This person left me. And so that cycle goes on and on and on until you jump in. And so the key is becoming aware of, you know, what is, what are the stories you're telling yourself and what is your suit of armor? Like what, what's the kind of safety suit that you zip into to prevent yourself from being vulnerable and noticing when and where those buttons are being pushed, noticing the function of, you know, this makes me feel more comfortable and less vulnerable, but really paying attention to the cost. How is this preventing you from being the me you want to be, having the life that you want, you know, maybe it's getting in the way of close connected relationships, maybe it's creating issues at work in some way. And as you can really like hone your ability to notice 
when that thing is pushing your buttons, then you have an opportunity to respond in a different way. So the idea is that, for instance, this individual who might be trying to create a close relationship is actually having had these early childhood experiences of closing the door, putting themselves in a safe situation in the room is metaphorically closing the door. So maybe not opening up, maybe not sharing, disconnecting when there might be an opportunity to connect, to be vulnerable. And while they might really value the relationship and want that closeness, the suit of armor is actually getting in the way. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. What would be the steps that someone would take to number one, become aware of a suit of armor? Because it might not necessarily always be the case that it's so easily identifiable, that trigger that happened in early life or those learning experiences. And then from there, maybe we could explore how someone could take steps to, you know, take a little bit of space from that suit of armor to unzip it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, I think when you do a good job of trying to figure out these three you know, I'm picturing it in my head as sort of three levels, the early experiences, the story you've created to make sense of the early experiences, and then the protective behaviors Mm -hmm. that kind of keep that story maintained. Um, I think when you do a good job of figuring that out, you start to notice that whenever you're having trouble, if you're feeling distressed, and I don't mean like you're annoyed because you're sitting in traffic, but like, you know, whenever you're having a pretty significant kind of issue, it's almost always this old stuff that's pushing that button. So I'll, I'll give you a personal example. Um, and I don't remember, honestly, if I share this in the book or not, but I talk about it in therapy um, when I feel like it's appropriate. But I had a mom who um, just didn't really show up for me for a lot of the things that really mattered, like really big, important things and times when I needed her. And I developed an idea from this that um, that, that the people who are supposed to love you and show up for you aren't going to be there for you when you need them. And so then the behaviors become like, I have to just make sure I take care of myself. Right. So like, if I don't, um, if I don't rely on or count on other people, I can't be let down or disappointed. So I became fiercely independent and competent. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I've been very successful in my life by being independent and competent. And I think one of the important points here is like, it works until it doesn't. And, you know, in psychotherapy, a therapist will often ask, why now? What's bringing you into therapy now? And I often find that the answer, it's not the way they say it, but I realize the answer is, well, that thing I was doing was working and now it's not working anymore. And it's the suit of armor. And, um, you know, so, so I, when I realized that this was my pattern, I saw like, wow, this plays out in so many areas of my life. I'm a therapist. So I'm in a position where my clients need me more than I need them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, in my relationship with my spouse, we have a similar kind of dynamic. When we were drawn to each other, it was at a time where it was clear, like, oh, he needed me more than I needed him. And that worked for both of us at the time until life happened. And then I really needed him. And then things became a little bit more difficult and we needed to to find a way to work through that. Um, So, you know, I do think that it's important to sit down and do that work of what were these formative experiences and how did that influence the way I see, 
myself or other people or the world or the future? And what am I doing um, in response to try to keep myself safe? And it's not super complex. Like it doesn't require that you go see a, a psychoanalyst three days a week for 30 years. Like, you know, you can, there's a worksheet in the book for like just sitting down and kind of figuring this out. <laughs> I was going to say you have some amazing exercises in the book and journaling opportunities that someone can pick up a copy of Be Mighty and actually go through and have the space and the guidance to do some of this work that you're describing now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then really like anytime you're really struggling or suffering, you can probably just stop and go, okay, is my suit of armor coming into play here? Is my narrative about the way I see myself or other people or the world, is that button getting pushed here? And when I connect with my values and the me I want to be, what do I need to do differently? You know, we can't control the thoughts and feelings we have. Those are going to show up. That old stuff is going to keep on getting triggered, but we do have a choice. You know, when I feel like I should just do everything myself, because that feels safe and I'm in control and nobody can let me down, but I'm drowning and not sleeping and getting migraines, then I can choose to feel vulnerable and go to my spouse or go to, um, you know, my friends or my colleagues and say like, Hey, I could really use some help and not everyone, you know, I will still get disappointed, you know, mm -hmm. right? Like not everybody is going to be able to show up, but other people will. And sounds so it sounds like you have that to... willingness to tolerate, you know, that vulnerability that comes with asking and the fact that you could be disappointed. Exactly right. Yep. That's exactly right. You really have to make space for all the discomfort that is inevitably going to show up because you're basically, you know, opening up the suit of armor and, and um, feeling more exposed. Yeah. And in the book you describe, you know, one of the strategies around opening up the suit of armor and managing that around compassion. And you also talk about connecting with this, um, self-compassion hero of yours, you know, the, what would Oprah do idea? <laughs> would you describe a little bit about that? I love it. And I love the idea of having this side of ourselves that, you know, for you is Oprah. <laughs> It is. I do. I knew anyone who's ever listened to any podcasts or read things that I write, I think everybody knows that I have a slight obsession with Oprah. <laughs> um, and the reason for that, I mean, I just think she's incredible. She's such a good example of somebody who has dealt with, you know, every potential obstacle life could throw at a person between poverty and racism and sexism and abuse. Um, and she's overcome all of those things. Um, you know, she's someone who's persevered through difficult times and she uses her powers for good. Um, you know, and she's also someone who's very publicly struggled with her weight. And that's a, an issue that's very close to me personally. And she's never let that get in her way. And so to me, that other piece is incredibly inspiring. And so, um, this exercise, and this actually comes from, um, I, I believe Janina Scarlett is the original person who developed this exercise. There are a few different versions of it, but in her superhero therapy book. Um, and, you know, the idea is to get in touch with that inner critic. Um, you know, the, the mean bullying things our minds like to tell us on a regular basis. Um, and then to think about, like you said, what would Oprah do? Like, what would Oprah say if, if, if I believe that Oprah is a person who is endlessly compassionate, that she knows everything there is to know about me, all my strengths and all of my insecurities and all the mean things that my mind is saying to me, 
if she heard those things, um, what might she say to me? And, and part of the reason for doing this is that, I mean, I could just tell myself, right? But that's a difficult thing to do. Um, and so it's trying to kind of harness this other compassionate being or guide. And this can be someone you know, you know, a, a parent, a friend. It can be someone like Oprah who you feel like you know, but don't. <laughs> or it could even be a fictional character. You know, it, it could be Wonder Woman or Harry Potter. Um, so really anyone that you feel like you can harness what you believe their compassionate voice would be and what would this person say to you that's really beautiful and i think that's a really nice reminder that if we offer ourselves the opportunity to connect with someone else so to speak or another side of ourselves that there might be a different flavor to how we show up in a compassionate manner mm-hmm. yeah and you also kind of highlighted there like some superheroes in the sense, you know, of Harry Potter, Wonder Woman. And in your book too, you talk about this idea that superheroes have origin stories, you know, that things might be turbulent for us, but we, we can go through them. And I wonder if this might be a way to start to wrap things up. If you'd share a little bit about this idea of how we can go through an origin story and then maybe link into what we can do on a daily basis to live a life that is mighty, that is aligned with this version of ourselves, the, the best me. Right. Well, the origin story really is that, that the piece that we've talked about already that sort of leads to the suit of armor. It's, you know, what are the early hurts that you've experienced um, that, you know, what are some of these experiences that you've had? Were you bullied? Were your parents um, critical or, or even overprotective, um, you know, too loving almost? What are the things that occurred um, that you feel like have influenced you or led to some of the development of some of your struggles? Um, and then knowing that that's only the first part of the of your story and that we can use compassion. We can use some of these other elements of acceptance and commitment therapy, like willingness that we've talked about. Um, and really think about who is this me that I want to be? What are my values? What is it? How do I want to walk through the world? What do I want to do and not do? But more importantly, what are the qualities I want to embody as I make some of those choices in my life? Um, and, you know, that's really that the piece that really leads to feeling more alive. And it, it doesn't mean that there won't be anxiety or distress. I mean, really quite the contrary, because oftentimes doing what matters, doing what's important to us, following our values can actually mean having more anxiety because these are the things that we really care about. And, you know, I, I, I joke a little bit in the book that like nobody lays awake at night worrying about whether Netflix is going to go out of business. And right, like we might enjoy binging on a great series, but it's just, it's not what we lay awake at night worrying about because it's not really what matters deep in our heart. We worry about the people we love and the careers that matter to us and our pets and the world, even the planet. Um, and so you know, even doing podcast interviews like this, for example, like I could be, I'm, I'm much more nervous doing this than not doing it. But as I said, in the very beginning of our interview, you know, disseminating this information, making act concepts readily available to people who might otherwise not walk through a therapist's office and get act. It is 
my most important professional value. And if that means, um, you know, I write a blog for Psychology Today, I have the book, I do podcast interviews, you know, these things mean putting myself out there in a way that makes me anxious, right? It's, it feels very revealing and exposing. I have to take off my own suit of armor. Um, and, you know, so being the me I want to be actually means having to have a little more anxiety, but I also feel more alive because I'm doing what matters to me. And that, you know, we talked about earlier the concept of acceptance and commitment therapy and didn't necessarily go into define it so articulately, but I think you just captured it all right there, that it's all about these skills and these steps that you can take towards being the me you want to be in this life, even with the experience of anxiety that might even show up more when you're taking steps towards living the life that is in alignment with your values (laughs) because you care. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Well, would you mind just giving a bit of a action? I mean, apart from grabbing Be Mighty, that the listeners might be able to do to take one step towards the me that they want to be. You know, I guess some of the examples that you gave in your book were around setting a daily intention or, um, you know, giving yourself a temporary tattoo. I don't know if that's something you might like to elaborate on, if there's something else that you might like to offer out. Yeah, that's it's a great question. And, you know, I think if I had to pick just one thing, um, you know, I, I think I would. So let me give, give an example, I, because I think that you can make big changes, but in very small ways, um, because every present moment gives us an opportunity to choose how we're going to show up. Right. So even in the smallest way, so for example, every day that I come, I'm sitting in my office now, so this is what I'm thinking about. Every day I come to my office, I have to choose whether to take the elevator or take the stairs. Seems silly, insignificant, who cares? Um, But there's an opportunity in that moment to choose the me I want to be. And I know if I take the stairs, my legs will hurt and burn because I'm not in great shape. I'll be out of breath. It will be uncomfortable. Not horribly uncomfortable, but uncomfortable. And if I take the stairs, it will be easy and comfortable. And so I have an opportunity to ask in that moment, like, what is this choice in the service of? Am I seeking comfort? Um, And is that the me I want to be? Or do I want this to be about something else? And if the me I want to be is somebody who moves their body and does the slightly harder thing because it's better for my muscles and my heart, then that's what I'm going to do. But lots of times that sounds like it's the quote unquote right choice, right? But a lot of times when I come to work, I have on high heels. I wear shoes that are uncomfortable because I sit and talk to people all day. So I wear cute shoes because I don't have to walk in them very often. (laughs) But, you know, I'm in wearing my high heels. I have a heavy bag. Um, You know, the, when I leave at night, actually, um, my going down the stairs, my heel gets caught in my pants sometimes. So it's a little scary. I'm a little worried. Dangerous. I'm going to. And if I have, you know, bags on both of my arms, it feels a little dangerous. So, you know, it might also be in that moment that while it's true, it's more comfortable to take the elevator, I might be choosing the me I want to be because I'm choosing self-care. I'm choosing safety because I'm alone when I leave the office at night. And if I fall, there's not going to be anyone there to rescue me. Um, So it's not that there's a right or wrong choice. And what you choose one day might be different from what you choose the other. But it's about taking that present moment and using it as an opportunity to make a conscious, deliberate decision that's based on 
the person that you want to show up as in that moment, as opposed to completely being on autopilot, which is how we typically tend to walk through the majority of our day. That's really beautiful. That's really beautiful because it relates back to what you described earlier in these choices of being in the present moment, looking at the ocean, being there with your kids, that this present moment awareness allows you to make a choice that isn't aligned with the me you want to be and to show up fully to the things that matter. So I think that's a beautiful takeaway for people to, you know, head off into their afternoons, their evenings, wherever they might be and create the me they want to be. Yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you so much again for your time, Jill. And would you mind just sharing with the listeners where they can find you, how they can connect with you? Yes, absolutely. So you can go to my website, which is just my name, jillstoddard.com. So it's J-I-L-L-S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D.com. Um, I have a blog that I write for Psychology Today, which is just called the Be Mighty blog with also my name. You can Google and find And I'll that. link all of this in the show notes too. Oh, good. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter at, what is my Twitter? At Jill underscore Stoddard. Um, I'm on Instagram a little bit, but not, not much. Um, and I think that's Jill A. Stoddard. <laughs> I don't even oh know most of my handles. So I'll get I'll, it to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll get them off you and make it easy for people to connect. Um, but I guess just my biggest takeaway is for people to grab this book because it's it's so heartwarming. And, you know, the other book that you have um, written for clinicians, which may or may not be of interest to a general audience is around metaphors. And those metaphors shine through in this book and make it so digestible and rich. So I highly thank recommend you. it. And I just want to thank you again for your time today, Jill. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that you found this interview with Dr. Stoddard as empowering as I did. If the concepts that she's introduced here today do resonate with you, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of her new book, Be Mighty. I love the book. I found the rich use of metaphors to be really captivating. And I guess with hindsight, it makes sense. You know, she's previously written a book on metaphors. But I also found that she brought humor to an area that could have otherwise felt quite heavy. And what this meant for me was that I was able to get through the book a lot more quickly and easily than I'd expected. So I could actually start this new decade with some action towards the mighty me I want to be. Thank you again so much for joining us in this Wisdom for Wellbeing launch week. We'll be back here again on Wellbeing Wednesday and then every Wednesday going forth. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.